Our sermon text today, as we continue to move through the earliest chapters of the scriptures, is the entirety of Genesis 5, which gives us the genealogy, or the line of fathers and sons between Adam, the first man, and Noah, the tenth generation of his descendants. Before I read from Genesis 5 this morning, I'm also going to read from the genealogy of Adam's son Cain that is found in the last part of Genesis 4, because I think the differences between these two genealogies are significant for us as we seek to understand the meaning of Genesis 5. And so as you listen now, I encourage you to listen carefully to these two different lines, these two genealogies. Listen now, friends, to God's holy and inerrant word. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen now to the word of God. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And now Genesis 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. 
Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahala, Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. O blessed Lord, you've caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning. And we ask now that by your Spirit, you would enable us to receive, to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly digest this portion of your word, that we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What lasts in the world? I mean, what really lasts? What really holds on? I mean, 50 years ago, this spot where we're standing, this neighborhood around us, was nothing but empty fields. 
Who knows what it will look like in another half century, another 50 years from now. Nations rise and nations fall. Civilizations that were once dominant, who seemed to tower over the earth, whose collapse seemed to be unimaginable, are now lost to the sands of time. And we have to literally dig them up to figure out who they were. Glorious buildings fall inevitably into ruins. Languages constantly are changing. An artist or a musician or a writer or a political figure for that matter, beloved by one generation, can be forgotten or hated by the next. In fact, the only thing, the only thing that doesn't change, that doesn't grow old, that doesn't wear out is, I would argue, the resurrected and indestructible body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, as the apostle tells us, the same yesterday, today, forever. All other things perish, but he remains, as our psalm from the call to worship reminds us this morning. They wear out like a garment, but he, Jesus Christ, is the same for his years have no end. And this same Lord Jesus has made us this promise. He has said, as our Westminster Confession summarizes, there shall always be a church on earth. There shall always be a church on earth. To be clear, the, the permanence, the, the strength of the church is not founded in its own cleverness, in its own capacity. Rather, its life is perpetually shaped and sustained and dependent upon the one who lives forever, the one who never changes, the one who does not grow weary, the one whose strength is renewed continually as he lives before his Father in heaven. For our Lord Christ is the one who builds his church and has promised that the gates of hell will not stand against it. And make no mistake, he did not build his church first with the apostles, but he began with the people of God in the very earliest days of his creation. If we're going to live with wisdom as God's people in this world, we must grasp this reality. We must grapple with it and contemplate it. We must say with the scriptures, all is vapor in this world. Apart from this alone, our Lord Christ and his body and those who participate in the life of the church, we must see, participate in something that will last, something that will never be wasted, something that will never disappear. And if we can live with that kind of holy confidence, knowing that we partake of something eternal, something that will not be destroyed, we can know, we can really know what it is to have peace and contentment and joy. For we will not be afraid of all that changes. But here's the thing, if we're going to live with this kind of wisdom and judgment and maturity, we can't put our trust in what we see because the contrary will often appear to be true. 
The wicked, as the Psalms remind us, Psalm 73 and others, often seem to be strong and unshakable, and we will be tempted to envy them for their apparent prosperity. And the church, by contrast, will often seem isolated and weak. But in this, as in so many things, we need nothing else than the word of God to shatter our illusions, to shatter how things seem to be and bring us back to truth and reality. And our scripture passage this morning does just that, I would argue. The contrast between the genealogy of Cain at the end of Genesis 4 and the genealogy of Adam and Seth and their righteous line in Genesis 5 is striking. Cain's line is full of cultural and technological developments, full of boasting about its strength and its power and its vigor. Cain builds a city and he gives it a name. He names it after his son because he built it. He populates that city with his descendants and they defend their city and their civilization with violence and threats of violence. But when you read Cain's genealogy more carefully, some things begin to stand out that are odd. There's no mention of years in the genealogy of Cain. There's no apparent passing of time. No one's death is recorded. It's just people living in some amorphous way doing things that are initially impressive but don't last. And in the end, his line just kind of trails off. What happened to the descendants of Lamech, the one who boasted so confidently of his violent strength and murderous power? We know that his sons developed animal husbandry and musical instruments and tools of bronze and iron, but after that, what? We find out later in Genesis 7, of course, that all of Cain's descendants perished in the flood that God sent upon the earth. But what happened in the hundreds of years between the sons of Lamech and the coming of those floodwaters? We're not told. Cain's genealogy just comes to an end. And indeed, beloved, the wicked are vapor. They are like chaff driven by the wind. We see that in this genealogy. They build their house on the sand and when the rain falls and the winds blow and the flood comes, great is the fall of that house. Contrast this to the genealogy of Adam and Seth. At first glance, this genealogy lacks the impressiveness of Cain's. There's no technological inventions mentioned at all. No city building is recorded for us in Genesis 5. Nothing is given to indicate power or strength. There are no boasts. Each generation in this genealogy follows just a regular pattern exemplified in verses 6 uh, through 8, which reads like this. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. You've heard that pattern, I'm sure. 
in the reading this morning. But a couple of things jump out here from this repetitive pattern given in the line of Adam and Seth. One is that there is a very detailed, specific accounting of time, of days and years. We are given the age of each man's father when he himself was born. Then we are given how long each man lived until he fathered his son. Then we are given how many years he lived into his death. And then we are given a summary, the total of each man's years. Now, it doesn't take much work to, to use the information that's given in Genesis 5 and build out a very specific chronology of all the years from the creation of Adam up to the birth of Noah. You can see this in detail in the chart that I mentioned earlier, the chart that I put out in the foyer, which was created by um, a fellow PCA pastor and friend of mine, a man called Eric Green, who pastors in Mississippi. But the genealogy of Adam and Seth does not only include the specifics of time, they also record the fact, the reality of each man's death. As Genesis 5.8 puts it, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Now on the one hand, this constant repetition, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's a vivid reminder of the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, that these men, like us, live under God's just sentence of death. But on the other hand, this recording of each of these men's death gives this genealogy a weightiness that isn't present in the genealogy of Cain. You see, Cain and his descendants are fundamentally insubstantial. They're born, they live, but we don't know when they were born or when they lived. And it seems that the end of their days is not significant enough to record. Even the fact of their death is not given. But for Adam and Seth and their line after them, these lives have a beginning, and they have an end. Yes, they die, but we know when they die. And we know that when their bodies are laid to rest, they are waiting for the resurrection that is to come. They die, but as Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, they still speak today. Of course, not all the persons in the line of Adam and Seth die, at least not in the way that all other human beings have experienced death. In verses 21 to 25, we read this odd thing. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 300 years. 65 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The story of Enoch is mysterious. We know that he was a righteous man, that he walked with God. Noah, interestingly, is also said to have walked with God. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. We know that Enoch pleased God. And we know that God took him to himself. And we also know this 
odd thing that his lifespan, so to speak, his years on earth at least, was much shorter than all of his contemporaries, his fathers and his immediate descendants, only about a third as long as they lived. Hebrews 11 explains further, it tells us, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Interestingly, and perhaps less well known, the epistle of Jude also gives us some insight into Enoch's life. He writes this in verse 14 of his epistle. Jude says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, the seventh descendant, prophesied, these being wicked, false teachers that Jude is generally writing against in his epistle. It was against these kind of false teachers, Jude says, that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That was the preaching of Enoch. It's a summary of his prophecy of how he functioned as a prophet there in the early days of humanity. And Jude goes on to tell us that he speaks against, he spoke against grumblers, malcontents, those who follow their own sinful desires, those who are loudmouth boasters, sound familiar in terms of the context of Genesis 4, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You see, Jude describes Enoch as a prophet and says that he prophesied that God would come with his holy angels in judgment against those ungodly sinners who spoke against God and boasted of their sin and persisted in unrighteousness. Interestingly, Jude also notes for us that Enoch was the seventh from Adam in the line of Seth, that is, in the line of the church. Now, a quick glance at Cain's genealogy will show that the ungodly Lamech, whose violent boast is recorded in Genesis 4, was also the seventh from Adam, although in the line of the wicked. It seems very likely that Enoch and Lamech were contemporaries with one another, and that Enoch spoke as a righteous prophet to his cousin Lamech and rebuked him for his sin and his boasting about violence and revenge. And so, we don't know this for sure, but it is possible, at least, that before Lamech could repeat the sin of his father Cain and murder the innocent one, as Cain did his brother Abel, God took Enoch to himself. He delivered him from being struck down by the wicked. Something to think about and consider, at least. The genealogy of Adam and Seth in Genesis 5 is also differentiated by this contrast to the line of Cain in Genesis 4. Their line in Genesis 5, the line of the righteous, does not just end as Cain does. No, there is a future for the people of God. There will always be a church on earth 
the gates of hell will not stand against us. Genesis 5, 28 to 31 tells us this. It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground Yahweh has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Now as we just mentioned, there is a Lamech in the line of Cain also. But the godly Lamech here in Genesis 5 does not boast of his own strength and power. Rather, he acknowledges the curse that God has brought against the ground because of his sin and the sin of his father. And he looks forward in faith to the future that God will bring through the son that he has been given. And indeed, Lamech dies just five years, if you do the math, before God sends the flood on the world to judge all of mankind. He too spoke as a prophet. And before the godly Lamech died, he would have seen the ark that his son Noah and his grandsons Shem and Ham and Japheth had begun to build. And he would have known that, yes, yes, I will die, but the story and the people that I am a part of will continue after me, even in light of the judgment of God. He would have known there is a future for God's people. There will be always a church on earth. Beloved, as we close this morning, I just want to point out one final lesson from this genealogy in Genesis 5. I know that many of us at times struggle with the apparent inconsequence of our lives. We hear it even in the words of Lamech. Desiring relief from work, his work, and the painful toil of his hands. We know the well, the truth of Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses, which teaches us the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. I mean, we know that, don't we? We know it in our bones, I would argue, the truth of these things. And the older I get, the more I experience of this world, the more I feel the weight and truth of these words. And I suspect that the same is true for you. It doesn't matter how many books we write. It doesn't matter how much money we make. It doesn't matter how successful we are or even how loved we are. Our span is but toil and trouble. Our years are few and they are soon gone. And we fly away. In the end, the only thing, friends, that can give us and our lives weight and consequence and meaning and significance is the fact that the Lord God, the Eternal One, the One who does not change, loves us. The hope that this Eternal God will actually cover up and forgive our sins and establish, as Moses says, the fleeting work of our hands, give it permanence, the promise that in the eyes of the eternal 
unchanging God, we, though we fall away and fail, are not insignificant, but rather precious, the very crown and jewel of his creation. And it is in this light that something interesting is displayed in this genealogy in Genesis 5. Beloved, with all its dates and years, this genealogy is given to us not so that we would not only so that we would know the names of the descendants of Adam and Seth and a little bit about their lives, but also so that we would know with confidence the true history of the world. That's one of the reasons we're given this genealogy, clearly. We're given this genealogy so we could do the math and know that it was 1,656 years after God made the world that he judged it with a global flood. We were given this genealogy so we could connect it to the genealogy in Genesis 11 and discern that it was 2,083 years after creation that God called Abram and told him to go to the land of Canaan. We were given this genealogy so that we could know it was 2,513 years after God made Adam that God brought Israel, his son, out of Egypt. In other words, in this genealogy, we see God keeping time for us and marking the years of the world's history for us. But do you know how God marks time for us, beloved, both here and elsewhere in the scriptures? He doesn't do it by telling us of the great cultural achievements of humanity. That's not how God marks time. He doesn't mark time by telling us when the cities were built, or when the canals were dug, or when the great battles were fought. No, the God who made heaven and earth marks time in this way, beloved. He marks time by telling us the lifespans of those men and women who are part of his people, who belong to his church. He measures out the history and chronology of the world itself by telling us when the people whom he loves were born and when they begat children and when they died. Because that's what our Lord cares about fundamentally. For our God, the people of God, is what history is fundamentally all about. It's not really about the pyramids and when they were built. It's not about the great battles and when they happened. It's not about the developments of philosophy or economics or cultural or art. History, fundamentally, as God reckons it, is about the days and weeks and months and years of those men and women whom he loves. The church that has been established in his son. That people of God who are always for him. The apple of his eye. Indeed, if I can paraphrase Psalm 116, we can say with confidence from what we read here in Genesis 5 that God gives us this genealogy and others in the scriptures like it that we might know and believe that it is true. Precious in the sight of the Lord. Precious, friends, in the sight of the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the birth and the life and the death of his saints. In the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that by your spirit you would grant us grace and wisdom to consider it and contemplate it and apply it to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.